Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. The top story, though, worldwide has to be the ship stuck in the Suez Canal. So let me go through some of the numbers for you because the numbers are important. $9.6 billion worth of traffic a day going through that very, very important waterway. That's according to estimates from the likes of Lloyd's. And the estimates around the amount of ships that are waiting to get through there right now varies. For us here at Bloomberg, what we're tracking about 185 vessels as of yesterday. I think Lloyd's estimating there's about 165. What we need to figure out is what is on these ships and how bad could things get, and how bad could things get quickly. So let's do that right now with Alan Gelder, Wood McKenzie Vice President of Refining Chemicals and Oil Markets. Now, Alan, we all know about the proliferation of just-in-time supply chains that came out of Japan and really, really gained traction in the United States in the 80s and beyond. So it is important when things like this start to get blocked up. I guess my question to you, Alan, is when things get critical. Is it days? Is it weeks? And critical for who and where? A really good, that's a really good question and becoming a bit more relevant given the news of ship unblocked, but the satellite image show it's still there and uncertainty of the timing. We think the biggest impact we're seeing from all the vessel tracking that we do is really around some bulks and, and container shipping, in which case it's all of those things that moves on containers, which are, is basically across the whole global economy. Um, we see less of an impact on sort of oil, oil products and LNG, but those things, sort of the, the impact on those gets bigger if we're still in this situation in a few days. So the blockage will have you know, lasted about a week or, or more. Yeah, Alan, the reason I go to these questions, because I think it's too easy just to put up the pretty pictures and let's say, look at this digger trying to get out the big ship <laughs> and talk about that for a number of hours. For business people, for I think for international traders right now looking at this situation, they want to understand how important it really is and when things get critical. So from your perspective, when you see that straight, through the Suez Canal, I'm trying to understand what is on the ships and what can be rerouted, one, and two, if in the oil business, are the pipelines around there you can use instead? How much capacity is there? How much alternatives are there out there to try and tackle some of these issues if this issue is still around for another week or so? If you think of, think of oil, there is the Sumed pipeline from Al Sukhna further south up to City Korea in the north. That's, there's plenty of capacity there. The oil market in Europe there's plenty of crew, there's plenty of products because we're sort of lockdowns are being lockdowns are being extended. So we don't see a problem in sort of Middle East crude making its way to Europe. We're not really seeing much diversion, plenty of stock. There's some issues potentially going the other way. It's more products. It may be petrochemical feedstocks because they tend to flow from the Mediterranean through the Suez Canal and, and to Asia. Seeing some price action there. And then you've also got some sort of Russian crude um, Caspian crude that comes out of the Black Sea, that often goes, some of that goes through the Suez Canal, that'll be restricted, we're seeing some of those differentials moving, but it, it's relatively small, the oil market isn't, isn't a big deal, um, it, LNG, if it lasts a bit longer, becomes a bit of a problem, but in terms of the LNG market, the good thing is actually now this is the shoulder season where demand's relatively low, but if the canal still is blocked, some people are going to have to make a decision do they go all the way around the Cape, Cape, Horn, Cape Horn and yeah. 
that adds nine days, in which case the shipping market gets tighter, and that'll then get ultimately get reflected reflected in pricing. We we think at the moment the market's sitting and waiting, and hope look fingers crossed on the news that the whale should be cleared like Monday, Tuesday next week. That's some of the news yeah. that's been gone, but we need to see. Alan, uh, John was talking about people wanting to talk about that digger next to the big ship, and frankly, I'm among them. I also am curious about the conversations in the cockpit of this massive uh, shipping container ship. The reason why, though, is a bigger issue, and that is the exhaustion after people bought more and more goods to uh, enable themselves to hunker down during the pandemic at a time when there were more people who were out of commission, not able to work. Can you talk about the larger story about stress points at some of these shipping centers, the idea that people are exhausted. They have been stranded at sea for days. I mean, for months, frankly, there have been stories of. Does that concern you in a longer lasting way on the oil market, on the chemicals market? I think it's one of those things that's largely gone hidden, actually. Um, the coronavirus, global pandemic, the lockdowns, there are there have been mariners that have been at sea for arguably 18 months, arguably 18 months or not, and are still have no means of getting home, have no means of getting home so working so how much fatigue played in the played in this incident i wouldn't want to speculate you, um, but if you look at it we've got supply systems and supply chains that are under quite quite a degree of stress and if systems are under stress then mistakes and accidents happen so it it's something that the industry needs to be, I think he's very, the shipping industry is very aware of uh, and is, try, is trying to resolve. Alan, I'd love to catch up again about this because if this does continue, as you know, it can take about a month to get a container ship from, say, China over to the UK, from India, Mumbai, over to Europe as well. It can take anywhere from 20 to 30 days too. And I think at some point you have to start thinking about what that route's going to look like in the months to come for some of these big, big journeys with these massive ships. Alan, it's great to catch up, sir. We appreciate your time, as always. Alan Gowder there of Wood Mackenzie. Let's bring in Mohammed Yunus now, Gallup Editor-in-Chief. Mohammed, let's start there. The perceptions of a rival superpower, how we should engage a rival superpower. What have you learned in the polling you've done recently? Well, we, in our World Affairs survey that we conducted in the second, uh, the first half of February, we basically asked Americans about their favorability or perceptions of a series of nations. Um, what we found is a record low in favorability of China, and this trend goes back to 1979. Uh, today, 20% of Americans say they have a favorable view of China. Um, in this uh, poll, we also ask about perceptions of who the greatest enemy is of the United States. Um, in the past, North Korea got a lot of attention uh, back in 2018 when there were a lot of uh, missile launches and rhetoric going back and forth. This year was the highest record ever, and this trend goes back to 2001, where 45% of Americans view China as um, the greatest enemy that the United States currently faces. It's interesting that half of Americans also perceive China's economy to be the leading economy of the world. Um, and when we ask Americans about the critical threats uh, to the vital interests of the United States, uh, China is uh, one of the many, actually, areas where there is agreement on both the right and the left in terms of viewing its economic uh, rise as a threat to the United States. So 78% of Republicans say it's a critical threat, 52% of Democrats, and about 6 in 10 Americans overall. Mohammed, I always think language is important. Whenever we talk about this topic, I try to 
use the words Chinese Communist Party and talk about the government and not the Chinese. And I know a lot of people do that innocently, without malice. They will refer to China as the Chinese and not the Chinese Communist Party. But the reason I think this is important right now is because I do wonder, at a really tense moment for the Asian American community and the deep issues, deeply upsetting issues that are being increasingly highlighted over the last several months, whether there is a risk of conflating the issues around the Chinese Communist Party and they bleed over and spill into and exacerbate maybe much more nastier cultural issues here at home. Absolutely. And it's a now more important time than ever to really make that distinction. I'm happy you give me the opportunity to do that. Um, first of all, in terms of favorability, Americans on the whole really do distinguish between sort of China and just Asian people in general. The data actually hand that out. Japan has one of the highest favorability ratings of any country we ask among Americans. Taiwan's favorability rating is on par with Israel. Um, so the notion that the favorability of um, China or Chinese policies in specific with trade, and we have data to show that that's really where the concern is with the vast majority of Americans, certainly shouldn't be read to mean um, suddenly that everybody in America or 45% of the people in America have negative feelings towards Chinese people or citizens. Um, of course, uh, we've seen a series of very uh, horrific hate crimes, um, not only in Atlanta, but uh, uh, many smaller ones across the United States. It's not really new um, for the United States, but what we know from the past um, is that, take trade, for example. Americans are very positive on trade. They tend to be very positive on trade with most countries that have a major trade relationship with the United States, Mexico, Canada, the EU, et cetera. Um, but they consistently had a less positive perception of the trade relationship with China in particular. So uh, we definitely don't want to conflate these two issues, um, first and foremost, because human beings, of course, should always be treated as such and not uh, uh, a reverberation of policy. Somebody named Mohammed in the United States, I can comfortably uh, say that I, I strongly believe in that. Yeah. But in addition to the fact that these issues are real, um, they're longstanding. And a lot of the you know, rhetoric that we saw, even around the, the COVID virus, um, had likely egged on some of that concern. But that doesn't change the fact that most Americans still know the origin of this pandemic uh, was in China. There's a huge issue with the World Health Organization and information about the, the, the origins of it. So the issues are real, yeah. but it's absolutely essential, of course, that we separate policies from persons. Mohammed, we only have about 45 seconds. What is the implication of public feeling right now in the United States, increasingly that China is the biggest economic threat? Is it military action or is it just more support for actions down in Washington, D.C.? I think overwhelmingly Americans view this really as an economic challenge um, from the perspective of public opinion. Obviously, there's a huge security element to this. But the more that we ask Americans about the trade issues, the more that we find most of them actually focused on it. For example, when we ask about the situation between the conflict between China and Taiwan, only 30 percent of Americans view that as a critical threat to the vital interests of the United States versus, of course, um, the economic rise of China. What an important conversation. Mohammed, stay close and come back soon. I'd love to push this one further. Mohammed Yunus there, the Gallup editor-in-chief. Bring in Seema Shah, Principal Global Investors Chief Strategist from over at Principal. Let's start there, Seema. Do you think this cyclical trade is breaking down or just taking a pause? 
I think it's taking a pause, but I have to say that the number one question I've received in the last week from investors is, is the cyclical trade getting a bit too frothy? And when do we know when it's time to shift? So this is already very pertinent in people's minds. And I think one of the reasons is, is that the market is very much one-sided in the last few weeks. It's very much, you know, very optimistic about GDP growth, very optimistic about reopening the vaccines. And, you know, as we've seen, a lot of people are really concerned about inflation rather than COVID. And you know what? COVID hasn't gone away. So I think this is a, a good reminder, but really the underlying story is still one of very strong fiscal stimulus, eventual reopening, even if the timing isn't too certain. Seema, what I found fascinating is just the lack of differentiation through much of the year until recently. We came into the year in the conversation, and we've said repeatedly on this show with you too, was around synchronised global growth. But the vaccine rollout's been anything but synchronised globally, and the outlook for growth has been anything but synchronised as well when it comes to the upgrades to expectations we've seen, the revisions over the last couple of weeks. Yet what have we seen? We've seen US banks up for good reason, US yields higher. We've seen European banks rally too, even though we're told that the outlook for European growth is inconsistent with the move we saw from yields. That was from the ECB, not from me. We've seen EM equities do well as well, even with China and Chinese growth and a credit impulse rolling over and growth maturing. Do you think that the breakdown in the cyclical trade on, on a global basis needed to consolidate before we can start to look at some real differentiation between regions as we start to build out this year again? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, increasingly the big question is, you know, which one is going to be the winner? Because not everyone, unlike we've experienced in the last year, not everyone is going to be doing particularly well. And as you said, that vaccine rollout is probably going to be the game changer, picking out who's going to be good and who's going to be bad. And kind of I was listening to, to some of your discussion earlier about Europe. And yes, Europe, it will accelerate. That vaccine rollout will accelerate. But they are falling further and further behind. And by autumn, they absolutely need to get their house in order because that is when we're also expecting another wave. So I think, you know, Europe really does have a task on its hand. Um, and from a macro perspective, you know, Europe, even in the second half of the year, I wonder if it's really going to um, be able to catch up with the U.S. Seema, how much are you actively changing your guidance in terms of what you think people should be investing in? Yeah, we, we have. In the last few weeks, we have um, reduced our allocation to emerging markets. Uh, concerns, again, about the dollar. You know, we came into this year expecting generally everyone to be on level terms, uh, a weaker dollar story. And, you know, we've seen that narrative significantly change along the lines um, as we've seen the fiscal stimulus package be introduced in the U.S. We've also reduced allocation to Europe. That was a little bit before the end of last year. Um, and also maybe, you know, reconsidering some of the small cap moves. We do think that maybe it's gone quite far. It needs to take a little bit, bit of time of uh, retrenchment uh, before we get back in that one. What are you looking at to decide whether or not there's going to be more retrenchment in the Russell 2000? Is it an idea of the retail investor not perhaps being as present? Is it the idea that growth isn't going to necessarily accelerate as quickly as people had thought? What are the signposts? I have to say, I don't think it's that straightforward um, as maybe it has been. You know, we really need to start looking at the valuation indicators. A lot of the position, the retail investor is clearly very important here. I think one of the things is, is that there's been so much market complacency around the cyclical trade um, that some of those concerns inevitably start creeping in. And that's what we're seeing at the moment. I think it may last for a few more weeks um, before we will probably be a little bit more confident about getting back into some of those more cyclical areas. See, but when you say complacency, are you looking at various trades here in the United States or on a global basis, a regional story? 
Well, it's come to your point is that it's been it, there was so much consensus view coming into this year about which ones were going to do well, about the cyclical trade, about the value trade. Um, and inevitably, when you've got a consensus, such a significant consensus move, there is going to be a moment where things start to break down. And I think that's where we are. Um, but, you know, we, we want to look at it as a long term investor. Generally, we want to be looking at the fundamentals. And to us, the fundamental story is still very strong for the US. Um, but of course, you need to start having a, a closer look at the regions uh, that I think you're investing in. That, that's where the dispersion is going to show up. I've been asking the impossible question, Seema, over the last couple of weeks. And Lisa, you and I have been talking about it. Lisa, whether growth expectations are peaking. And you have no way of knowing that right now. But we've had a series of guests on this program who have said, not yet. We think we can still surprise to the upside. And I've just seen a data point on U.S. retail foot traffic rising 58% last week from a year earlier. This is the base effects. We're going to start to see this a whole lot more, Lisa, in the months ahead. The base effects will kick in. And even though a lot of this is highly predictable, I think a conversation you and I have had repeatedly is how surprised some people will be by some of the numbers we might see in the next two months. Absolutely. A lot of people I saying mean, I that July 4th is sort of the key moment. Seema, can you weigh in on where you think the expectations are based on equity pricing right now? Do you view uh, that people have baked in all of that optimism, that increase and that base effect that John is talking about? Or do you think that equity traders will also be surprised by how good it is? I think there is actually some surprise yet to come on the upside. And I think, you know, if we just even turn our minds back to about two or three months ago, there was still a general view that some of the cruise liners would never get back up on ship. You know, where would the demand realistically come from? Yep. And what we're hearing more and more is that people are just desperate to go out and do the stuff that they were not able to do. So I think there could be certainly some upside surprises to come. Just have a look at the price of flights domestically here in America through the summer to get a view on where things are going. Seema, good to see you. Seema Shah there, Principal Global Investors Chief Strategist. Nathan Sheets, Pigeon Fixed Income Chief Economist and Head of Global Macroeconomic Research. Nathan, let's start here. A conversation which we touched on about 10 minutes ago, which I don't think we've talked about nearly enough. The previous administration, when they talked about taxes, they weren't talking about the wealthy, although some people down in D.C. wish they had have done. They were talking about supply side issues, investment in America. And maybe that was covered, maybe it wasn't. I'm not in the position to talk about that and offer my opinion. Nathan, do you think we need to have that conversation right now again? I think at a minimum, what we need to do is be aware of the supply side. And I think the, uh, the case to consider tax increases, given where our fiscal position is, is, uh, is compelling. There's also a, a case for uh, various kinds of regulatory interventions. But as we do that, we also need to think about how business is going to respond and the implications of that for uh, the business environment. And I very much hear kind of a demand side uh, perspective of the economy articulated uh, frequently, and demand is critical. But in order for the demand uh, to, to be met, we also need the supply side to be strong. And balancing those considerations, I think, is, is critical. And I think it would be helpful in our debates to have uh, more of that kind of supply side perspective. At the end of the day, uh, firms, corporations are not the enemy. They've got to be part of the solution if we want to have the job creation and the growth that we all desire. Nathan, unfortunately, that's not been part of the conversation 
on one side of the political aisle for a long, long time. And arguably that started with the former President Barack Obama when he turned around to the business community and said, you didn't build this. So let's talk about that a little bit more. I want to understand what you saw as an outcome of the corporate tax cut from several years back and whether it's simple, as simple as reverse engineering that and saying this is what ha will happen if you hike it. Can you help me understand that particular situation just a little bit better? The corporate tax cut was uh, a powerful experiment that I think was cut short. Uh, through 2018, we were maybe starting to see uh, a few hints of strengthening uh, in investment and maybe some increases in corporate sentiment. But then President Trump came with the trade war and just quashed uh, those uh, those early gains. And so we never we, we never really found out. So in the event, we didn't get the investment that they were arguing, but it's not clear if they had had a different policy mix more broadly, whether we might have whether we might have seen that. I I I think it is uh, it was a huge miss opportunity where uh, President Trump implemented half a policy and then just basically killed it with the trade wars. Nathan, can you elaborate a little bit more? Because at first blush, it is counterintuitive for the trade war to lead to less development at home. You would think that it would lead to more. That was the goal, given the fact that it would become more expensive to do business overseas. Why did it have the opposite effect? Uh, I think we saw it uh, on a daily basis through that period in the equity market. It was a source of uncertainty. And uh, many firms in the U.S. economy, the reality is, are dependent on uh, imported intermediate goods, and especially the firms that uh, are likely to lead the way in investment. And when they don't know uh, what they're going to have to pay for, for the products they use in production, uh, it's very difficult for them to uh, make business decisions. And they certainly don't want to talk about expanding the scale of production. Uh, in that uh, in that environment. So it's a, a systemic source of uncertainty and particularly uh, particularly hits uh, input prices uh, hard. I mean, kind of the bottom line is, as many were arguing, the trade war, I'm sure, had some adverse effects on the Chinese economy, but it also had some important adverse effects on the U.S. economy. Just going forward, there's a question about the costs of rejiggering some of the supply chains, Nathan, and this has to do not only with trade policy, but just in general, uh, some of the fragilities that have been exposed in just-in-time shipping and, pa and packaging in the wake of the pandemic. How will that factor into economic growth, into inflation, given the fact that it will be retracing some of the, uh, the growth in globalization, then the cheaper uh, goods that we saw resulting from that over the past couple decades? I think that one of the messages uh, of the last five years, both the trade war and the pandemic, is that many firms have concluded that the world is a very risky place. And it behooves them to have more diversified uh, supply chains. Some of that might mean bringing it home, but some of that may mean diversifying it uh, out, of, uh, out of China. And uh, in addition, they need uh, supply chains that are going to be more robust to a whole range of shocks. 
and that's likely to mean higher inventory levels uh, for firms going forward. Now, I think the implication of that is that inventories, they have been so small in recent years with this just-in-time inventory management. Inventories are likely to be larger than they have been, and they are likely to become, uh, like in the 70s and 80s, uh, maybe not to that extent, but similar uh, qualitatively, uh, more of a driver of business cycle dynamics than we've seen in, in recent years. Nathan, that's fascinating. I had that conversation with PepsiCo, the CFO, a number of months back, and that's going to be a really compelling thing to watch. Nathan Sheets, good to catch up. PGM Fixed Income, Chief Economist and Head of Global Macroeconomic Research. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.